Hey, Will I Like It listeners, do you like a good cup of coffee, one that's rich, flavorful, and ethically sourced? Then you need to check out Dynasty of Coffee, a Yorkshire-based online coffee business that offers a range of expertly crafted blends. All of their coffee is roasted to order to ensure freshness, and they're committed to nurturing the well-being of both individuals and the planet. Whether you're a fan of a bold, strong coffee or a smooth and mellow one, Dynasty of Coffee has a blend for you. Their four main blends are inspired by different British dynasties, Saxon, Viking, Tudor, and a decaf Hanoverian. So if you're looking for a delicious and ethically sourced cup of coffee, head to dynastyofcoffee.co.uk today and use the code SAXON10, that's SAXON, all capital letters, 10, at checkout for 10% off your first order. Enjoy! Hello and welcome back to the Will I Vike It podcast. My guest today is Sally Ann Spence from Berrycroft Hub. Yes. Welcome, Sally. Hello, good You're to no- see you. Normally on the other side of this doing the interview. I am. This is a little yeah. bit different for me. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to make sure I don't just start interviewing you halfway through. <laughs> well, if you've got any questions, that's fine, because it is a conversation. It's not not an interview as such, I'm not an interviewer. So okay. uh, yeah, so I thought we'd start off by talking a bit about what you do and how you got started, but because you do a lot of things. You want me to narrow it down? We'll narrow it down, I think. So we'll start off at least. <laughs> we'll talk about Berrycroft Hub and what it is. Right. So, well, Berrycroft Hub was a little bit of a, um, an evolution of, of ideas and concepts and everything else. And basically, uh, I do a lot of research based around dung beetles and uh, restoring of castland, which uh, has a, a tenuous link to archaeology because obviously the area. Uh, and also, um, I work with hordes and uh, remains from archaeological digs that are insect based to look at so I can build up more of a picture of the um, environment at that time yeah. of, uh, that was it was in coordinated and then um, I have students that come here because we're on a farm and I've got wonderful spaces here and mm. got a lot of archaeology here and uh, we have students come here and stay and do various different things and um, so I started trying to do more research my funding comes and goes such as the joy of funding for yeah. various projects and i need to do a lot of work on this particular project for 40 years really it's a long-term project and um we had a student here at the time and he was busy chopping down trees with stone axes and digging out hollowing out log boats and as you, you know <laughs> as you do um had bits of dead horse in various states of decomposition you know all these things we could do and yeah. host here because of the farm and what we can yeah. what we can provide and uh, he wanted to start doing workshops as well. And I thought, well, you know, actually, I've, I'm so passionate about what I do. I've already converted a room in my house into a laboratory. And I have my own entomological students and, and ecology students, sorry, coming to that lab. So it would be good to, to start perhaps running some public workshops. And I also do work in within the museum trade. Um, and I'm always a little bit sort of sad that when I walk around the museums very often there will be something that says this is a replica of what these little bits would be like if you'd found it yeah. as the original thing which is great because it gets people to visualize because very often when they see tiny little things they think you know how is that a sword or what type of sword if yeah, you just got these little visualize. bits yeah, yeah exactly and bits of pottery you know yeah. and so these are amazing people that that make these replicas and uh they get their replicas, is in the museum, they've been commissioned and they've got their replica in the museum, but very often it doesn't actually say who made the replica. 
And uh, with this student and other people that are, that are making these replicas and they're making all this stuff, you know, this incredible amount of craftsmanship going into these things. And uh, invariably, those people aren't very well off either. Um, and uh, they love their craft, they're obsessed with their craft, and so they should be to be at the top of their game. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, perhaps we do start running workshops here. Mm. And rather than just this one person running public workshops, we can run other workshops with other craftspeople. And uh, a majority of the funds will go into their accounts, and some of it will come back to the hub, and that will help me fund my research. Yeah. So um, a lot of the research is, is done like that. And then as a result, over the years, I've had more people coming to the hub. We've, I've got a very high bar of tutors. So they, they are incredible craftspeople. Um, and they're teaching people how to make these replicas as well. And you can make swords and you can do pots and you can flint map. You can do all these amazing things here. Mm. Um, but they have to run a workshop through me because you could be amazing at what you do, but you're rubbish at getting that across to other people. Yeah. So it's really important I get that as well. Um, and we've just had an amazing journey getting to know these people. And then I've been asked if I can do some um, living history media for museums. So I've been able to get people together and I've also taken part in other people's projects to do that. Uh, and also seeing, and it's just grown and grown and grown. And we've had TV stuff going on here and it's just gone, yeah, bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's been great fun as well. Yeah. And I've just built up a wonderful group of people. But it all started sort of doing this whole supporting students. And we still do support a lot of students doing yeah. various projects. Um, and, uh, and how I can keep a little bit of funding coming in for the research that I'm doing. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up on this, this journey. <laughs> I know, it's, a, it's an interesting place. Like whenever I come here, you've got so many stories to tell about <laughs> things you've done or things that are about to happen. And... It is. Everybody knows that um, if they want to do something a little bit outlandish, we have the space and the enthusiasm to host it. I think that's that's important. Um, and, you know, I, I supervise students anyway professionally and I, I peer review papers and I have that academic background. Um, but it's fantastic just to be able to say, yeah, you know, let's, let, that's a brilliant piece of research. We could host that. Why don't we have a go at doing it? Let's see, let's see if it works. Yeah. And then, then I've done, you know, similar to yourself, go around and talk to people. Um, and I've gone around and met incredible people and just said, oh, that's amazing. Can I, would you mind if I just do a bit in front of the camera? Because that's so cool. Can I share it with more people? You know, there's, there's incredible people doing amazing things based around archaeology and other sciences as well. And I just, I, lo I love it. You like shouting about it. I do. <laughs> I do. You know, so many, you get these... Um, amazing people as I say you know like yourself you know doing doing things I mean you've, you've written books you do the cookery courses here you do all these amazing things yeah. and and you know you you are sometimes quite shy about what you do and I want to tell people that you're incredible modest yeah, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're incredible what you're doing okay. and you, and I think we we don't celebrate everybody has imposter syndrome and people don't celebrate themselves enough um, and I'm not saying in a big-headed way, but there are incredible people out there, especially with this, this replica-making craft skills and things like that, that and they're, they're just not shouting about what they can do and the quality they're doing mm. it at. And their replicas are in our, our you know, museums and, and places, and then they're, they're not, you know, they're not just doing it. And, and in this day and age, it's all social media. It's all about shouting about how amazing you are and how good your product is and yeah. all this sort of thing. Yeah. And these craft people are just quietly working away you know, in the background, and it's just nice to give them a little bit of... Well, what would it take to get museums to actually credit? Some museums do, and they yeah. are doing it more now. Yeah. Um, but I have, you know, I have been around... The thing is, 
Um, Neil Burridge does swords and things here, and and he'll he'll say to me, oh, you're, I'm somewhere like the Isle of Man. I was on the Isle of Man recently looking at dung beetles and things, and he said, oh, Isle of Man, yeah, I said, I've got a sword in their museum, and I cannot go anywhere without going into a, a museum. I'm, I'm not a complete museum fan. Yeah. And um, and I, I went into the museum, and there, sure enough, was this beautiful bronze sword amongst all these little bits of broken sword from from a hoard or, or a dig or, or somewhere. Yeah. Um, and but it didn't say Neil Burridge. Now, to be fair, though, that is bronze sword. It, it doesn't degrade. He mm. he done it for the museum absolutely years ago. Yeah. And they just put it in their display, and of course, that, it stays like that. And over time, probably they've forgotten who made it potentially yeah. as well. So it's it is, but it is coming in more. Museums mm. are doing it more, and I think it's really important. And and also the the makers, you know, getting them to be proud of what they're doing. You know, Neil's mm. got stuff Stonehenge. British Museum all over the place. Yeah. And he's really quiet about it. <laughs> and it's just like, no, you know, you, you can't be quiet. You've got to say, you are an amazing craftsman. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And we give them space to do stuff in. We had a student here who wanted to learn, he wanted to learn bronze casting. He'd, he'd seen Neil, he'd seen other people. And then he, he, we gave him somewhere he could just be in a space and just work at learning his craft, just doing it over and over again until he, he got it right. And that's that's great to be able to say, yeah, you know, we helped you on your journey because mm. not everybody's got the space that we've got. Yeah. So you can you can do all sorts of things here. <laughs> so you started out. You said you started out with uh, dung beetles, right? Yes. So you should probably still with dung beetles. I know it's your love, isn't it? Right? Oh, absolutely passionate. <laughs> absolutely passionate. And you've about you've been on TV with them, and yes, I've done yeah. lots of things with dung beetles. I've just come back from a big um, science conference where I've been talking about dung beetles. So why dung beetles? Why not? So, well, <laughs> you, when, you, when you go into entomology, you, you choose... Entomology is such a huge science. So entomology is the study of insects, a massive, massive science. Um, and uh, you sort of... You naturally go down a route. And I did go down, I have to say, the popular route, which is beetles, which is coleoptera. Yeah. So everybody loves beetles, and you know, they, they tend to be the more popular group than sort of others. Um, and then... You know, we farm here. I'm a farmer's daughter as well. I have my own area of ground that I rent and I keep animals on. It's part of my research work and everything. And um, I'm looking very much at sustainable farming, natural bio—you know, increasing biodiversity, not mm. losing it, and various other things. Um, and I've obviously got that interest with how we've looked after and farmed livestock throughout the millennia. So looking right back to the Mesolithic times all the way through. And dung beetles are absolutely vital. Uh, to the whole natural system, and uh, so um, I've I've sort of gone down this whole route of of getting into dung beetles because it just works for me. Yeah, and um, yeah, I oh, guess I does, does their presence sort of indicate a healthy ecosystem? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I can tell you so. Do you, I, do you, I can take this whole podcast over now. Like <laughs> um, so to put it yeah. into context, we have we have dung beetles in the UK. Yeah. You don't see them very often because we don't have the rollers, and everybody thinks of dung beetles. They think of those ones rolling the dung, yeah. um, and we don't have them in the UK. So ours live in it or under it, and that's okay. because they have less competition for the dung. So when you said dung beetles, I was thinking of the rollers. The rollers. Yeah, everybody okay. thinks of the rollers. Yes. Yeah. Everybody stopping the safari jeep, jumping out. <laughs> David Attenborough's there as well. You know, everybody's yeah. excited about them. So ours are smaller. We're, we're northern hemisphere, so our insects are smaller. Mm. Although we have door beetles that are sort of, you know, that sort of size. Um, and what they're doing is they're doing a whole host of ecosystem services and ecosystem engineering. 
Right. So they can they they make all these amazing holes into the ground. Some of them, you know, size of my thumb. That yeah. helps compaction, aeration, water infiltration. Um, they break down the um, dung, take it into the ground as well, eating it and everything else. So they're, they're doing that, all that carbon sequestering as well mm. uh, by by getting into the dung again, break it down quickly, stops the methane production in the dung because it's not able to ferment. Um, oh. You know, all these amazing things they're doing, yeah. um, and and ultimately they're getting rid of the dung. And so they're breaking down parasite cycles as well. So lots of parasites pass through the animal, go yeah. into the dung, carry on their life cycle, migrate out the dung, get eaten again. Yeah. Uh, that stops. They they can't do that because if the dung beetles get rid of the dung really quickly, that's that's the end of it. Uh, they carry these little tiny mites on them, really cute little mites, and um, they're phoretic. They live with the dung beetles as, as a symbiotic relationship. Is that like the ones on slugs? Um, some yeah, you see them on um, you see them on carrion beetles and things like that as well. Mm. And they'll, they'll jump off the dung beetle when they get to the dung and they go off and look for fly eggs and mites, oh, you know, okay. little things that they can eat. And then there's less competition for the dung beetles. And it also reduces all the flies that are pest species for the yeah. cattle or sheep or whatever. Uh, you know, and, and they, they've got different dung beetles active all year round. And some of them fly in the daytime and some of them fly at nighttime, yeah. which means that birds and things can eat them during the daytime. And at nighttime, bats and things can eat them. Right. Yeah. And you get a real good relationship between earthworms and dung beetles as well. So they're, they're affecting everything in the soil as well as above ground. They're just awesome. And, and in Australia, I, I, right, so you just really done it now. <laughs> so in Australia, um, they didn't, they introduced all these cattle and sheep. Yeah. And uh, the dung beetles in Australia, the native dung beetles in Australia, only eat marsupial dung. So yeah. very few of them wanted to touch the cattle and sheep dung. Yeah. And then they had this massive buildup of dung, which meant that they had to use more land to graze the animals on as well, um, because you had this pasture fouling scenario. And the massive, massive increase in flies, buffalo flies, um, and uh, I can't remember the other ones, hide flies. Yeah. Um, and and you know, you've got the Australians with the corks around the hat, you know, all these, all these flies. Uh, and it was, it was crippling the whole industry. Right. And so they actually went out and they collected dung beetles, eggs, from around the world in suitable places that would be able to survive back in Australia, bred them in captivity, and then released a couple of generations later because you've got your biosecurity. Yeah. And, the, and they now support the entire livestock industry out there. You know, and, but, you know, and I've, I've spent years studying dung beetles and we don't have lots of data on them. Well, we do, but we don't because they live in dung. They're not like moths and butterflies. People mm. don't get as excited about them. A lot of people didn't know we looked at them. Nobody wants to shift them through dung and also you might get trampled yeah. by a cow or something. <laughs> um, so they, and they're very hard to identify the different species. So we decided for the State of Nature report, the IUCN report, um, which is an international union of conservation, we decided to get lots of data on where the, how the dung beetles were doing. Mm. So we're using museum data and we were using other data. And I spent six years going all around the UK looking at dung beetles and looking at farming from the Orkneys all the way down to Silly Isles, from the Isle of Man, across to Jersey, you know, yeah. Ireland, everywhere, Northern Ireland and things, saw loads of archaeology, absolutely loads, because dung beetles like, they're, they're mecca, is yeah. undisturbed ground, sorry, just grazed ideally by native species or something like livestock. And that's often on archaeological sites as well. So um, it was just... So oh, you're too interested. Yeah, to you know, dung beetle all day. Yeah. And, and again, a bit at night. And then in my breaks, I'd be checking out the latest, <laughs> you know, barrow or something that we got in the area. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, up in the Orkneys, amazing. And, you know, in, on the yeah. West Coast Islands, the archaeology is stunning. Yeah. Arche and island and places. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so then that data came back. And when we've collected pretty much the data we, in the time period we had, 
found out that basically uh, just over 50% of our species of dung beetle are either extinct or seriously threatened. And that's really, you know, mm. important that we get on the case, like I said about Australia, you know, we can't yeah. afford to use them. And there's so much of our wider biodiversity, our farmland birds, you know, our swallows, swifts, all these things. Um, you know, everything eats dung beetles. Yeah. Uh, they get the lizards, um, you know, frogs, toads, um, snakes, I'm sure, owls, you know, songbirds, mm. raptors, you know, badgers, foxes, hedgehogs, so many mice, you know, it's, there's so much that eats dung beetles above yeah. and below ground. They're really, really important for biodiversity. So what's killing them? Is that climate change? Right. So what's killing them? So mm. um, loads of things. Uh, and the one thing that everybody overlooks uh, and we cannot overlook it, is the removal of livestock. Because if you remove livestock from the ground, yeah. that's the end of the dung beetle, that's extinction. So this ties into my other question. I know I did a question yeah. beforehand. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's that thing. If you remove the livestock, you remove the habitat, because these dung beetles only live in the dung where the animal has de you know, deficited. And that's, that's because they're, they're such an ancient group. Yeah. So they're from the from the last ice age and before. You know, we've got evidence of dung beetles in dinosaur dung. Yeah. But there's this slightly different group than we've got now. But they were still dung beetles. But they, you know, from the last ice age, we had these huge herds of reindeer and things. You know, moving around the country, browsing areas, grassland and everything else. And they were they were a huge part of that. And mm. um, they're recyclers, decomposers. They're really important in the ecosystem. Um, so we've had these these species for a long time. But the um, the, so removing the livestock means that they we don't know how far they fly particularly. So and we've put roads everywhere. Yeah. And insects can't always get past roads and through roads. So we cut yeah. the place up with roads. We remove the livestock. So the ha the habitat becomes less and more fragmented. It's harder and harder for these beetles to get round. Their genetic diversity drops, mm. and we start to lose them. Then they get climate changes affecting them. Tiny things so climate affects them. Uh, how we manage our livestock, a lot more livestock being kept inside over winter and inside generally, and that's, you know, again, it's habitat removal because uh, you've got different species active all year round. And then it's, it's a biggie, the one that everybody knows about because it's published about so much, is the use of, um, of treatments in the livestock. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're uh, anti-parasitic, um, right. parasitic anthavermectins. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're wormers and things. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and uh, they're using them for the animal welfare, and they're still those chemicals are still active in the dung, and that's having an effect on the dung beetles. Um, but it's it's a very very difficult thing. You know, you can't get rid of all parasites. You and I have got parasites mm. right now. Probably not as much as the Viking poo in Nordvik. <laughs> he had quite <laughs> he had quite an assemblage of things going on there. Yeah. Um, but we we all all oh, everybody. It's it's part of a healthy system. Parasites are part of a healthy system. But when you have a build up of parasites that affect the growth and the welfare and everything, then you will treat them. We do it with our cats and dogs, you know, people flea treat. <coughs> yeah. um, we, we Our children, mm. your child had nits, my children had nits. Uh, we've been lucky so yeah. far. Yeah, oh, right, we had nits, so we have a shampoo, some medicated yeah. shampoo that will have treatments in it. You yeah. know, all this sort of thing. It's, it's, it's um, an insecticide, basically. And, yeah. and unfortunately... So how do you get around that? Because if you've got the dung beers, I'm assuming you don't treat the cattle like that? Yeah, so here, here's a different system. So I'm working on, on the ground I've got. I've got several different systems in place uh, and I'm researching how we can get around it. Mm. Um, both, I, I have to make money at the end of the day to be able to pay the rent, to be able to keep my 
the whole thing afloat anyway. Um, and when I'm talking to farmers, it's really important that you know they also have to make a profit. That's their livelihood. Mm. So by having that sort of full system here, yeah, um, is quite important. We I have been able to show that you can do various things. I've got one site that's really exciting because as we got the dung beetles up in numbers, we've also got a massive increase in really rare plants and other insects and all sorts of things. So that's incredible what's happening yeah. up there. And we're literally restoring Cacaris grassland, which is a really rare habitat uh, at, a, at a phenomenal rate now. Mm. Uh, and that's great. Um, but what we're trying to do is, is play with ideas and management plans, how farmers can reduce the use. They want to reduce the use. These chemicals you know, are expensive. Um, yeah, if you, you don't have to use them. If you don't want to use them, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're working with breeding plans with the animals um, and all sorts of different things. I want to see livestock in the countryside yeah. uh, for my dung beetles and all the other wildlife it supports. Um, but, you know, it's it's how you can manage these these chemicals and how you can use them. They weren't here before the war, and we. but you did have dead animals before the war. You had, you know, if you had a really poor animal that, that just didn't respond to, to samphoin and all the other natural things... Um, it died, mm. <laughs> so you didn't breed from it. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, you know, you, nobody wants to see a dead animal, and nobody wants to see an animal suffering. So you yeah. treat it. You do the same with your your pets at home, and that's what the farmers are doing as well. Mm. Um, and it's just what we can do. There's no magic wand yet, but I'm working on it. And at the moment, I go all over the UK working with farmers and and bringing management plans and toolkits that they can put in place, and they are taking it up everywhere. It's so yeah. positive, and that's because again. You know, they, they want to be more environmentally friendly. They, they're trying to do what they can um, and they want to cut their costs, you know, what they're having to spend and they, and they want a better system. Mm. So it's, it's been huge and, and we've got loads of people on board doing various things and working with it. So, it's, yeah, I'm done yeah. Beatles. It's interesting, though, that kind of I say symbiotic again relationship between cattle and something like a beetle because it's not something I'd ever yeah. really thought about. Yeah, no, very um, much so. But yeah, yeah. So the the climate change kind of thing at the minute is a lot of talk about not eating meat and and removing. Yes, it is. A, and actually, from what you're saying, that's actually quite important. Yeah. No, I I need livestock in the countryside for yeah. the for the biodiversity that it supports is colossal. Yeah. Um. And if you don't have to the the country, as I say, cattle and sheep and everything are there there. Go back in time, go back in time to the, the as I say, the last ice age when we, mm. we had many animals roaming around. We don't, they don't roam very much. I, now yeah. obviously they're, they're more enclosed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the massive intensive systems, um, but that's being driven by the consumer and the retailer and feeding our rather large population. The cost of food. The cost of food, you know, it, most yeah. people, um, you know, I produce meat here. Uh, and yes, it is more expensive because it's cost me more to get to that point. Mm. And, and I'm trying to sort of, you know, I'm extensively grazing rather than intensively grazing. So I need to get more money from less animals almost, yeah. if that makes sense, for, for the whole system to work. And, and a lot of people, you know, when it comes to feeding a family, especially now, in this crisis we're in now, you know, people are, they're, they're not necessarily going by, by taste. They're not necessarily going by what's got, you know, the behind of that production of that piece of meat or anything, they're going by price. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're, and I, I can blame them, really. Food is so expensive. Food is really yeah. expensive. And, and the food I'm producing is good food, mm. really tasty food, ethically produced. It's doing, you know, it's part of the research. It's, it's doing an awful lot for the biodiversity. We've proved, we're showing what it's doing and how we're, we're getting this massive increase of biodiversity. Um, but but it's, it's more expensive. Mm. And I completely understand why 
that's that is a problem. Um, but it's, it's incredible things going on. You know, we got we got we've got this piece of land that was that was had um, it had a grassland on it before, but they were quite commercial sort of lay, what we call commercial lay. So Italian ryegrass um, lay, which is a one that you can plant in and everything. And then yeah. we've we've removed all the uh, fertilizers and all that sort of thing. We took off the cows that were on it and we put uh, that were more continental based. And we put on native cattle, so we got Dexters and we got Belted Galloways. Uh, we took out all the fence lines and we've got a, like a 200 acre block and then I've got another 70 acres next door to it um, because when the bull comes I can't necessarily have him in the same area and everything. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there was a very small population of a special dung beetle, Onthophagus joanni, which I'm particularly passionate about and I can say its name that I like because <laughs> they're very complex names as well. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to study how this dung beetle moved around. We know that it's very sensitive to nitrates in the soils. We know that it's very, very sensitive to, to various treatments that you put on the animals. Um, and we've, we've changed, we use drones quite a lot to monitor the animals because they have to keep an eye on them all the time because obviously mm. to be in advance of any problem, yeah. any animal that, that continues to hold a parasite burden has to go, it can't stay here, we're breathing off things that don't, you know, lots and lots of things we're doing. Mm. Um, but what's happened is the plants have started to change. As the dung beetles moved around, they got more dung going through. We had more earthworms, we started getting mole hills, got moles going everywhere. The cattle are moving up on the hill. Yeah. As they move up through the hill, they're, they're creating little pathways. Lots of insects sun themselves in the pathways, slices out, and they use mm. the pathways to get through. We had the moles chasing the, the, the um, earthworms up, with the, chasing the dung beetles that were chasing the cows. And then uh, we had lizards coming out that were sunning themselves on the molehills because there's bits of chalk that are nice and warm. And then, of course, they can eat the dung, the dung beetles and everything, yeah. the flies on the dung. Um, and then we had lots of mice coming in and all these things. And then, of course, the, the uh, kestrels are coming in because the cows are changing the height and the swords. The kestrels and the owls can all um, feed because you need different height swords and things like yeah. this. And then the, um, the, they are taking the mice and then because the mice where they've had holes and voles and things and they've left the urine, the bees are picking up that. So we've now got bumblebees coming in. And it just went on and on and on. And this whole system went from being an arable, well, not an arable, but a, a more intensive grassland mm. to being this incredible restored habitat. And now we've got gentians and all these amazing flowers coming through. And we've been able to prove that they're not coming through from anywhere in the area. They aren't in the area. That We've reactivated the original seed bank. Oh, wow. So you know, all these things, and I never set out to do that. All I wanted yeah. to do was to increase, you know, have a more of an understanding of a dung beetle. And we've just, just opened this, this Pandora's box, which we expected because this is ecology, you know, ecology is all about systems. Yeah. And we opened this Pandora box about, you know, the whole ecology of Cocaris grassland going on. It's great. I love it. All yeah, because really of this little tiny dung beetle. Yeah. Don't overlook dung beetles. Dung beetles are <laughs> awesome. It reminds me a little bit of that, I don't know if you saw years ago, there was that video that went around about the walls being reintroduced to Yellowstone. Yes. It's like that, but on a Wiltshire version. Yeah, it is. It is. It's my, my thing. You know, yeah. they are just, they are um, a real keystone species. Yeah. And and they're really, really important. And, um, and they've just been overlooked in many respects. But they do need dung. And so we do need animals. Um, mm. and, we, and those grazing animals in that, that sort of thing. You know, our wildlife hasn't really changed that much over a very long time mm. and uh, they still you know they're adapt we've got generalists and we've got specialists and we're losing the specialists more than the generalists because they, they find adaptation quite hard yeah um, and uh, but these you know the, that that interaction of li livestock is is a real big part of our countryside mm. 
and and where it's changing is where you know we we're, we're doing it more intensively um and and you see these feedlots you know they're they're not in this country they're in another country yeah. you know more farmers in this country are, are much more in things like organizations like pasture fed for life and all these different organizations yeah. where they're you know trying to do that and and you know i am a, i'm f from farming family and i farm and myself and everything and i'm also an entomologist and ecologist and i do my archaeology and everything it just all comes in together because it's all part of the land you're on you know I, people have lived here for a very long time yeah stock has been here for a very long time the wildlife we've got on the farm has been here for a very long time so you start you know working with it farming with it and yeah but it's, it is driven mm. by price unfortunately you, you know we we People just can't afford really expensive food, and food is fundamental. Yeah, and but then you say you need the money from the cattle to keep your project going. To as well. keep the cattle project going as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah we do because I need to understand so much, and it's it's not a five minute thing. And the data from this goes into policy and all sorts of different things. And didn't you say it was 40, 40 years? Yeah, yeah. So how far in are we? I am well, not far enough. I am 20, <laughs> 20, 23 years into the project. And over halfway. Yes, and I'm a little way. I'm halfway <laughs> through my life now, so it's like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've cancelled dying. I've got too much to learn. <laughs> the one thing that that science does to you is just teach you you need to learn more. Same as archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as we think, oh, this is a time period this happened in, somebody digs something up somewhere that changes it all, and and invariably it's like, oh no, actually they were doing that much earlier. Yeah, um, and that sort of thing, and and yeah, and I'm so lucky here. I've got a Mesolithic site. We're, we are literally meters from a Mesolithic site here, uh, where we are, where I've been picking up little cores and and mm. microliths and things like that. We've got Neolithic sites. We've got Iron Age. We've got burial. We've got all these incredible things. People have lived and farmed here for a very very long time. Yeah, so it's quite exciting. It is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as we've talked a bit about food, yes, and as it's a food podcast, a lot about dung beetles. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bring any dung beetles today, <laughs> but what I did bring is some wild garlic, which I picked Ooh. locally. Wow! From our secret spot, our secret spot, yes. Yeah, I uh, picked it on the way here, and I thought I'd show you how to make some garlic fritters. Oh, I'm so up for that. Yeah, I did. I've got some uh, hazelnut patties with me as well. Yes, um, which I made yesterday for a video. If anyone wants to know how to make them, check it out. It's on YouTube. Um, so we can have some of those and, and make some garlic fritters. Definitely. Um, and then I've got my questions for the end. You've got your questions. <laughs> your questions. Yes. Oh, wow. Well, I, I must admit, it's, it, you were here cooking with a course the other day. Uh, yeah, it's probably two weeks ago now. Two weeks ago, yes. And um, yeah, there, there was some... There was, there, you were doing hazelnut fritters then? Uh, no, hazelnut. We did a version fritters. of it. Yeah, yeah they were a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, so the ones I've got with me are more like the ones that are in my cookbook. Right. Um, and the ones we did on the course, we used malt extract instead of honey. I completely forgot there were butter in them. Forgot my own recipe. <laughs> but they, they still tasted they good. They tasted amazing. Just, they weren't quite as sweet as the honey ones. The honey ones right. are, are sweeter than the malt ones. But I think malt extract is often one of those forgotten sweeteners. People don't seem to realise. Uh, well, that. I didn't know what it was. When you, when you got it out, I was curious mm. as to what it was. I thought it was... A bit... Well, I basically didn't know what it was. I thought you'd be using honey, and then you've got this other thing out. And I, I couldn't place it. And then as soon as you did it, yeah. molasses. Yeah, molasses. Could, yes. Um, things like uh, malt loaf. Most people know malt loaf. Yes, used to uh, squidge it. Yeah. It, the other thing is I've been asked in, in an interview before, oh, I didn't know they had that. But then they realised afterwards they thought I was talking about um, yeast extract. It's a marmite. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no, no. The marmite didn't work so well. Oh, no. No. <laughs> No, no, it wouldn't. But they're also made from brewing, so I guess they're connected. So we got lots of evidence of brewing? 
for brewing, uh, yeah, yeah, beers, ales. I mean, there's references in texts as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, even in stories like Beowulf, you've got the Great Mead Hall. Because we have wild hops here. Do you? We have wild hops, which you were saying you can eat the the, the tips. You can eat shoots. the tips of them. They're a bit like asparagus. Could we make beer with our wild hops then? There's no reason why you couldn't. Ooh, yeah. it's a little project, isn't it? A little <laughs> experimental Obviously archaeology. You, if, if they're wild, then you don't know what kind of... Because um, you put hops in for their acidity yes. and for their preservation. And obviously with a wild one, you don't know what, like, what they call the alpha acids. Right. You don't know what they'll be. Whereas when you buy a commercial hop, you've got like a level. Mm -hmm. Getting geeky now. Yeah, <laughs> we like that. They come up on a scale, so you might have like 4.2%. And and you can go up and get like more bitter hops or less bitter hops. So okay. with your wild ones, you'd it would be an experimental approach. You'd have to just brew and see what happens. One tip I had from a mead maker recently was to make a tea first with anything right. you want to add to making mead or anything like that. Anyone that's watched it will have already seen because um, it will have gone out already. But oh. um, yeah, essentially what you do is you make a tea first and then you can experiment with how much of something you need to make it's stronger, weaker, how long you leave it to sit for before you use it. And yeah, so it might be worth picking some hops. Mm, I think we have to do Making that Making a cup of hop tea. <laughs> for science, obviously, for science. For science. Yes. Um, um, for science. And just to get an idea, or if it was me, I would just go for it. But I, tra yeah. I trained a couple of my cows as oxen yeah. to play pull at Arnage Ard. And as we, you do. As you do. <laughs> and, um, and a couple of years back, we grew a trial plot of einkorn and one yeah. of emma. So I have this plan of ploughing some ground with my ard, yeah. with my cows, planting some of this home sage seed from the emma and einkorn. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure we can do something with that. That would be quite good. That would be fun. It would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. And we need to, we've got to think about how we harvest it and do it. Or authentically? Or Auth well, I think yeah. so. Yeah. It'd be a shame not to use that opportunity. It would. It grows really, really tall. We, we grew this um, einkorn and it went ridiculously tall. Mm. And you, it can't have the sniff of nitrogen. Because if it has the sniff of a nitrogen, it just goes right up and then it just yeah. goes flat over and you've got ergot and moulds and all sorts of problems oh, with it. Oh, yeah, that. No. But it really showed how you, they got a crop, from my mind, it showed that they got a crop that they could use as thatching. Yeah. And they got the uh, grains that they could use for the... Their breads and everything else. Do you so have like to pick it before it collapsed? You'd have to. Um, oh yeah, definitely. You don't want it going down. Don't want it going down because that's all. then you've got the problems with you know molds and things. Yeah, that's where the witch hunts that. came from because the they have got um, yeah. ergot, didn't they, and things in there. Yeah. Things, so in, They're all poisoned. And yeah. I, yes. I don't want any of that going on. Lots of hallucinations. None of that going on at Berrycroft. Um, but yes, we yeah. got to. Um, that would be good fun. I'd love to do it. I've just not not done the planting with the cows as well. Because we'd need some way of milling it as well. Well, that's going to be grindstones, isn't it? I'm after a, a bit, of, bit of elbow I'm grease. I'm after a kernstone. But anyone out yeah. there knows where I can get one. Well, that'd be good. I've been looking. I've been around Torm and everything, and no one seems to sell them. Oh, right. It'd be good to have. Well, you just sit there and do yeah. that. Yeah. That's a lot easier than the whole... The saddlebacks. Yeah. yeah. So I think saddlebacks, they used earlier in the period, and then it moves into your... Uh, Cornstones. Yeah. And then I think even later in the period, they were using like watermelons and, yeah. and stuff to produce it on a... Like, that's when you get into the stage where you've got a village with a bakery. I mean. <laughs> well, it would, be, it would be nice to do the whole thing. I've got a bit of ground I can do it on. I've got the cows. Yeah. The yard is actually belongs to Butzer, but I'm sure if I, it's still here and I'm sure if I ask them nicely, 
And then we've got the seed, so we could do the whole whole thing through. Just that and some beer. Yeah, and I've got a thatcher who'd be really interested in working with some of the straw. So this is this is yeah. how Bearcroft works. Isn't it? <laughs> this is what happens. It's like, oh, that's a great idea. We've we got do it on this. camera now, so you've got to do it. <laughs> yeah, I've got to do it. <laughs> this is uh, every time. This is what sort of thing happens. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. what I'll do is I'll set up my little hob mm-hmm. and we'll cut so you guys don't have to watch all that more and stuff. And we'll cut back in a minute and we'll start making fritters. Brilliant. Yeah. Let's go for it. Uh, right, so we're going to make wild garlic fritters. If you want the full recipe, uh, I have got a video on my YouTube channel, uh, but I'm going to show Sally how to make them. Wow. And well, right, I- so we're going to start off. We've got some lovely fresh wild garlic, which we mentioned before, mm. picked from our secret spot at the road. It smells Which, amazing, doesn't it? And I should probably warn people to be sure you know what you're picking before you, you pick anything. This was in amongst um, lots of, we had lots of um, ivy growing in amongst it. Oh, yeah. and, and Did Lords you get Lords and Ladies? I was going to say Lords and Ladies grows in it, doesn't it? Yeah, which so say people think looks the same. I think it looks completely different. But if you were just grabbing handfuls willy-nilly, then you might end up with something poisonous. So do be careful, guys. Um, and obviously forage from the local supermarket. Aha! Yes. <laughs> Some sprig onions. Brilliant. Right. Some salad onions. We so. need to finally chop all of that. Okay. Right. So. Chop it with this knife. Yes. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna interview you now. Tell me about this <laughs> knife. This looks amazing. <clears throat> that is a knife that was on a guy oh. called Tom Bainan, the blacksmith, who yes. I know you know. Yeah. It was on his website for over a year. Oh really? Um, and it kept. You know, calling me, I suppose. Is... Yes, I, I've got some of his knives that have called me as well. It's... And it was sat there, and then after a while, I was like, it's got to have gone, I'll check. And it was still there. And so I sent him a message. So I've only recently picked that one up. That looks like a bone handle. It's based Ooh. on a knife from uh, Yorick. Oh, it is. I didn't bring my other knife with me, but it, originally I bought a smaller knife that he was selling at the same time. Um, it's fatal, isn't it? It's fatal. He's again. His craftsmanship is amazing, and I love that he does all the um, replicas again from archaeological evidence, doesn't he? The other little knife I've got was really cool. I was wandering around your museum, and someone's like, "That's the knife I've got," <laughs> and you could see it with the bits missing, where it had obviously rotten away from being a wooden handle. Well, I, I do a little bit of reenactment, and something else I do is a little bit reenactment. And um, is, is that the size we're chopping for? Yeah, that looks good to me. Yeah, and. Uh, I, Tom Thomas made an amazing um, 12th century little knife, eating knife that I've got, uh, which is gorgeous. And then, of course, you know, he makes other knives that are just as gorgeous. And before I know it, I've got, yeah, well. Can you ever have a knife? Well, I've got a sword habit. I've got a dagger habit. I've got, you know, it's um, yeah. come the zombie apocalypse. I, I'm sorted. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorted. Yeah, he'll, he'll post stuff up and... I've got a nice Yorick folding knife as well. Oh, have you seen the Roman knife he's done with the hair and the hands? Yes, beautiful. Yes. Right, I'm still going. I'm still going. I've still got my fingernails as well. I did wash my hands. We were talking a lot about dung beetles. I just wanted to point out <laughs> I have washed my hands. That's always good. Yeah. Not handling dung beetles. Not handling. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's so many other things we haven't mentioned yet because you were saying in between that we haven't mentioned your headdress, so we're gonna have to show that. Oh yes. At some point after we've done the fritters. Yeah, so I'm a bit of a replica maker myself because you can't be surrounded by all these incredible people and not have a little bit rub off on you. Um, did it make its debut at 
Beltane? It did. It's been to I've uh, Butzer. Butzer Beltane, which is an amazing event. There you go. So uh, right. onions, same thing with the garlic. Finally chopped. I love the smell of wild garlic. It's it's such a smell of spring, isn't it? You hear mm. the first bumblebees, smell of wild garlic. I just love it. It's just I, I love foraging and everything. Obviously, you've got to be careful. You don't take everything, and and mm. you respect you know get landowners' permission and all this sort of thing. But um, which is really important. But it's yeah. the foraging is basically fresh food, isn't it? It's as fresh as it comes. Fresh food that's that's um, farmed. Yeah, not being produced in any way that's detrimental to anything and goes back to the whole environmental oh, thing again does. as long as you're not stripping an area yeah same with berries you want to leave berries for the birds as well so oh, don't just... absolutely it's really important about leaving because that's that's the only food they've got you can go off and get other food but that is literally the only food they've mm. got so it is about not taking everything but it's just such fresh stuff yeah. it's great i love foraging <laughs> right so bring out my fancy pot so we need to make a batter to put this in okay we just I'm getting lots of lovely smells already from the garden. That's good. You need like smell of vision. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got one cup of flour, mm -hmm. which can go in. Right, one cup of flour. Yes. Okay. We need about a quarter cup of beer. Now I'm looking at that cup. I'm not familiar with the size of that cup. Um, so I would have said about half of that cup. Half of that cup? Yeah. Of beer. So that means there's another half left in it. It does. You're gonna have to oh, that's it. a shame, isn't it? <laughs> Right, oh, have I gone over? Uh, we'll see, we'll see. It should be okay. And then we've got right. two eggs. Two eggs. Not from my chickens. Not from my, why not from your chickens? So I've had chickens for over 15 years and I discovered this morning that they can get a thing that makes the eggs smell like fish. And I didn't think <laughs> right. you'd appreciate that. <laughs> Eating my breakfast this morning, I was like, can you smell fish? That's and it was funny. the eggs. Really? Yes. So they can get um, oh, thank you. high uh, omega content. Which oh. they, can, they can get if you feed them beans and like leafy greens too much. I didn't know. But apparently that. it's a genetic thing. Right. Because um, this time of the year you can get goose eggs, which I love. Because you get lots of yolk. Oh, they're massive. Yeah, lots of yolk in a goose egg. Last time I had one of those with a big plate of chips. <laughs> well, we cooked an ostrich egg last year as well. And uh, we had to use a Dremel to actually get into the egg. <laughs> no one could crack it. Um, and, wow. and also, I didn't want to, to damage the eggshell too much because I want to make it into little beads because we've got lots of really. Um, prehistoric beads from Africa and things all made out of uh, ostrich shell. Yeah, so I want to do that. So I want to be very careful. So we dremeled open our egg, opened it, and it was just the whole frying pan with an egg. <laughs> and I ended up having to make an omelette with it because it just wouldn't cook. Uh, what should we do? Should we use a whisk? I've got my tavar there. So is that the top of a Christmas tree? It is. I've got to do this. Yes. So the top of the Christmas tree. Uh, it's called a tavar in Norwegian. Probably. Mm -hmm. Badly butchered my pronunciation there. <laughs> uh, it literally means mixing. Um, and most people I gather have them in their kitchens even today, even if they're not using them. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, Evidence-wise, I don't think there's an awful lot about Viking Age. There is one find, I think, from the 11th century from the, oh, what's it called? There was the pass. Uh, the, I should know this. Because so, all I can think of is the Kaiba Pass, and I'm, I've got to carry on in my mind. No, so in Norway, there's there's the pass that, um, because of global warming, is melting at the moment. Oh, so they keep on... oh that's where Secrets of the Ice, um, where yes. they're pulling out all the, the they've ice. now got the two skis, because they had one ski that they yes. found, and now they found the other ski, and they found horseshoes, and they found a foot of a horse as well, and a dog that had a, uh, not that I've been really following this. <laughs> so um, they found something like this. Right. But, 
it had a sharp end, and so some people think it could have been used as a tent peg. Okay. Um, but other than that, it's exactly the same as this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the word tavar, I believe, comes from an old Norse word. For, um, yeah. That's... So these are these are plausible. You'll see them a lot in reenactment camps. A lot of people have them hanging up in the tent, and they hang things from them. Mm-hmm. So it's a multi-purpose. But, that's, but that's, there's no reason to say that they they wouldn't have been using them like that, though, is there? Mm. Um, okay. And you can. They say you can use them for mashing as well. I've tried. Ooh. So it's okay. It's not great. You'd want to really boil your potatoes, though, wouldn't you? No potatoes? Oh, no. no. Vikings. No, Vikings. Turnips. No potatoes. <gasps> Don't mash yes. turnips. Mash potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes, potatoes were quite a late addition, really, aren't they? Uh, 17th century. Yeah. 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 So, right. Okay. So, if you prefer a spoon, a... I can get you a spoon. No, I'm going to do it um, authentically. It's what I love about this food, it's very simple food, isn't it? But then. Yes. Were they, you know, what, what were they doing as with? How much evidence do we have? Is are we looking at reg- residue? Sorry, in pots and things like that. There's a bit of residual stuff. A lot of the things are based on things like seeds and pollens that are found in places like Norway. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find like oyster shells and that, you know, stuff that actually survives. Yeah, um, and bones as well. So bones are interesting because previous to the Anglo-Saxons, at least, we have. Whole bones that are found, like in the Roman period, they tend to find intact bones. In right. the Saxon period, they tend to be fragments of bones, Ooh. which could imply they're cracking them open the marrow. and eating the marrow. Yeah, yeah, that would be my best guess. We, we actually, there is a Norse story where Thor um, cracks the bones. In fact, right. he doesn't. I should remember the story before I start telling. <laughs> You're being recorded now as well. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he he serves up his goats because he can bring his goats back to life the next day. And they pull his chariot. Oh, yes, yes. And in one story, there's a couple of farm children, and Loki convinces them that the best bit about the bone, about the meat, is the, the marrow and oh. the bone, and so they crack them open. And it's the one thing they were told not to do. And so when he puts the goats back together again, they've got lame legs. Oh, oh, right. So, I mean, it's a story. Yeah. We, but... we, we had a, a student here doing some experimental archaeology that was looking at a really, really ancient site in Germany where they found horses that had gone into out onto the lake fallen yeah. through the ice and had come back and had floated it's very very early site and uh, the horses had floated back to the shoreline yeah. and the, the young horse the foals had all sort of bobbed away a little bit yeah. and when they when they, they dug the site and found this the big horses all had uh, had signs that they're butchery but no meat as such but the bone marrow being taken and I think what happened, it was a really, really cold time, lots of predator pressure, which is why the horses ended up out on the, the lake yeah, ice. Um, and then they'd obviously decomposing and floated, and that's why they bobbed around. The little ones are lighter, so they bobbed further away. And when when the, the um, hominids had come across them, or humans, I'm, I'm, I think it's a Mesolithic site, actually, yeah. um, had come across them, they had uh, all they could salvage, and they were obviously hungry as well. All they could salvage was the bone marrow inside the big horses because it hadn't the flesh had started to rot, but the bone marrow was still good to eat and obviously highly nutritious. Mm. So yeah. I don't know, but we had we had bits of dead animals to sort of did a bit of experimental archaeology with that. It's amazing what you end up doing. So you've actually done that, yeah, that's quite smelly. Mm. Quite a smelly piece of work. I'd still be put off by the rotting meat, even if I was using that bit. Yeah, it was it was in experimental conditions, I have to say. And uh, Yes, risk assessments and all the rest of it. But, um, yeah, it's quite an interesting piece of work. Mm. But 
But it's interesting because I also talk about dung beetles. Hate to bring it back to dung beetles. But um, there's one area uh, up in Northumberland. There's a herd of cattle called the Chilean cattle. Yeah. And they're wild. The only wild herd. This, the herd's actually been split. There's a residual herd now up in Scotland. But uh, they're the only wild cattle. And there's potential at the moment, they think that these cattle might be... Um, it might be to do with the Vikings. Right. And the Vikings came over and bought them over the So that'd be an exciting piece of thing. So they're yeah. definitely chipping away on beef and everything as well. Right. Cool. How, this is thickening up now. It's going to be pretty good. I think we've got rid of most of the lumps. Yes, that's done a really good yeah. job, hasn't it? So it does, does what it's intended it to. It really does, yeah. I think that's... Is that good? Is that that is pretty good to me. Yeah. So, next job is to mix in the spring onions. Oh, before I forget, because we all like a bit of salt in our dinner. There's every chance they were out foraging as well. There's no reason why they wouldn't be foraging for wild foods as much as for farm foods. Yeah. I mean, people, Absolutely. those, presumably, you didn't have the money for certain things, you could go and supplement your diet. And they're seasonally, they're eating seasonally, locally sourced, seasonal food. They're yeah, storing food their they're food. Producing. That's really important. I mm. mean, was, they probably had far more flavours and better flavours than we do in a lot of our cooking today, to be honest with you. There's another interesting thing as well, is that we know what ingredients they had based on the evidence. Mm. But does a leek today taste like a leek from a thousand years ago? Yeah. We really think that the, they were eating beetroot, but probably for the green and not the bulb underneath, because that was developed later. Okay. So there's that change of use. So then were leeks different? Were carrots different? Were well, probably we were. Really no, do we? Because if you look at the, some of the heritage seeds you can get, like they do lots of trials at the IHS and you know seed banks and all this mm. There's, I know I bought some, because some, you can buy heritage seeds now, can't you? Yeah. To grow for old crops and they yeah. do taste a bit different. Yeah. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah. And this is a pot that's a, a replica pot? That is a replica pot of a Viking find made by a company called Anots Pots. Anots Pots. Yeah, she's usually at arm if you go to the oh, yes. artisan reenactors market that we have in March and November. Yeah. She's always there. Um, I think pots. I bought some Tudor pots off her actually. She does multi period, so she probably would have done. Yeah. She's got jugs, cups, beakers. Yeah, really Fantastic. nice work. Yeah. Right. So this should actually be hung by a rope over the fire. Okay. Um, I don't know if you remember, but on my last course I did that, and the rope snapped. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so if anyone knows how to stop ropes from snapping on these pots, luckily I was holding it when it snapped, otherwise it would have fallen into the fire. Yes, that would have been devastating, actually. Uh, yeah, so Thank we can a mix-up. Right, so we'll give this a mix-up. Can I, can I just show you everybody what it looks like? She says as it all swaps around. Oh, I really smell that, man. It's amazing, isn't it? Such a short season. You can you can eat so much of wild garlic as well, can't you? You can eat the flowers, the buds, the leaves. You can eat the bulbs, but you need the landowner's permission before you root it. Yeah. But the bulbs are edible. Uh, the flowers are great. They really, if you eat one of the flowers, they almost explode in your mouth with, with flavour. See, I love all that sort of thing. As, as a really young child, I used to find honeysuckle, wild honeysuckle, and used to mm. pick the flower, bite the back off it, and suck this tiny amount of honeysuckle, <laughs> honey, um, nectar out of it. I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, and um, I, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have any of that sort of thing. You know, mm. I had the last feral, what I call true feral childhood. Yeah. You know, we could just go for the day, and our parents 
I don't know if they had a level of concern or not, but um, we'd, we'd just be gone. Yeah. And, and we'd make camps and we'd have fires. I was really young making a fire in a wood and things and doing all sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we, we, we ate sort of stuff. And we, you knew what you could and couldn't eat. I was going AWOL from about seven, eight onwards. My daughter's six. Yeah. She's not going Can you imagine that seven. now? No. Can you imagine it now? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, used to, used to, uh, I knew, knew uh, you could boil water, you should boil it before you drink it and that sort of thing. Yeah. But we used to go off, we used to you know, make a campfire, we knew how to, you had to scrape everything away so the leaf lizard didn't take cut fire, uh, catch fire and yeah. Yeah, we had those skills, these ones really young children and um, used to wild camp loads. Mm. And we were, we were you know, distant enough, but, but well, still on our own farm, but yeah. we had that lovely you know, wild childhood. Mm. It's such a shame people can't smell this, it smells beautiful. Yes, yeah, I, I love cooking with fresh food. I love food that, that is, as I say, seasonal. I think that's a big problem with our food. It's just people expect everything all year all round. Year round yeah. And so it has to be grown somewhere. And then, of course, it has to be bought in and travelled and, and messed around with to keep it fresh. Yeah. You know, that's the sort of thing. So, yeah, I do like fresh food. Packed in bags of nitrogen normally. Mm-hmm. And chlor- uh, chlorine, isn't it? They often pump into salads and things. It's... it's um, you know, you can all do something small, even if you're growing cress on a windowsill with your children. I don't just bought some home from school. Yeah, yeah. so you should, yeah. We used to do it with it. We used to have eggshells, like the eggshells we had a minute ago. We used yeah. to put kitchen roll in them. Yeah, that's it. And then draw a face on them and put cress at the top yeah. and just learn how to grow. Yeah, because you don't, you don't need to have a huge garden or anything. You just need to have that opportunity to grow something. Some herbs. Yeah. I mean, exactly. salads, you can grow salads all year round, things like rocket and spinach. Yeah. Grow on the windowsill. Well, we can't in our kitchen because the jack door has it. But otherwise, <laughs> we have and my plates would be tools. Yeah, cockroaches uh, and everything else because everybody has cockroaches in the house. I'm sure in their kitchen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I gather they used to get out, but Harry dealt with them. Yeah. Well, I spent a little while studying cockroaches, and I had um, boxes and boxes of them in my different species in my kitchen because it's nice and warm in the kitchen it's an old farmhouse we've got an old sort of um old fired agar um so you've got this lovely heat it's it doesn't dry everything out and it's just a great heat um so and i used to breed lots of insects i used to go into schools talking about teaching about insects as well so i had this huge amount of colonies of cockroaches on one side of the room and then I had mantises and giant lunar moss. I also had owls at that point because Harry Potter was a huge thing. Yeah. A friend of mine runs a owl rescue, raptor rescue, and she was overrun with owls. People had gone out and bought owls for their children because you could buy a barn owl really cheaply on the internet. Yeah. And you need May 10 for taking out to public and things like this, different licensing thing, but mm. just for as well as a pet. Uh, and you know, ridiculous. And of course, you know, so she was overrun. So I, I ended up, and we had an owl that was da- um, hit by a car on the farm. Mm. So we brought him in, and he had to have an operation on his wing, and then he had to stay in the aviary until we knew he could hunt for himself and all this sort of thing. And the aviary I connected to the house. And so I had two owls, Sarah and Spook, that were rescue owls. And then I had Alfred, who was the wild owl, who was going to go back on the farm. Yeah. And we did successfully put him out on the farm at his accident. Um, and I used to open the windows, and Alfred, uh, Spook would come in. But you had to be really careful because I was breeding all these giant moths at the same time. Oh. And, and an owl and a moth don't always make good good living companions. And yeah. then I had all these other insects, stick insects, massive stick insects, and all sorts, and all these cockroaches. And the cockroaches were great. Um, and they, there was one colony that if you 
touch them, they get panicky and they set off a smell of rotting meat. Oh. And that's their defense. Yeah. So if you touch one, the whole lot just go poof. <laughs> and my and uh, my aunt doesn't like me having cockroaches in the kitchen. That sort of freaks out a little bit. And one day she caught accidentally just caught the edge of the, this um, stand that had these cockroaches on, and of course the whole kitchen just went poof into a smell of rotting oh, meat for about three days. So yeah, that's good. quite interesting. Yeah, but no. So any cockroaches that get out um, and appear in the kitchen, yeah. Harry will have as a little proteins. Uh, if I don't get there quick enough. Perhaps if we've got time, we can introduce Harry. Oh, we ought to. Harry's a big part of Berrycroft. Yeah. Right. He's What's, your logo and everything, isn't he? He is my logo, yes. Uh, yeah, so blobs of, of the batter. Right, so... Like that, yeah. And just try and leave a gap between each one. And that is literally it. Is I like it? simple foods. Simple foods. Easy to do. Because, I mean, this, this sort of food is very much, um, if you're a bushcrafter and outdoor, this is something you can be, do easily with the children. Yeah, it's absolutely. really good. Yeah. One way to get your kids to eat their greens as well. My daughter will eat the flowers. Yeah, because when people go camping, they, they do baked beans. And there's so much more you can do. I think that was originally where I started branching out, was you go to reenactment and everyone's cooking sausages. And I kind yeah. of went, I don't want to do sausages. Well, I do, but I want to make the sausages. <laughs> yeah, <good. laughs> and so it, it's kind of built from there, really. I think that's really important to me. You know, we don't buy any... Oh, that's touching. I'll move it across a bit. Yeah, I'll leave we, it like that for now. There we are. Let me just get a spatula because we'll flip them. We don't, we don't buy meat. You know, we produce all our own meat here. Yeah. Flavour and everything else is fantastic. We have vegetable garden. We produce our own vegetables. Um, you know, yes, you do run out and have to supplement it from shops, but we're pretty food secure here. Mm. And, and the traceability of that food is obviously exceptional. Sustainably produced. It's great. So how food should be. At the moment, yeah, we're very my, lucky because of my butchery courses. I eat a lot of venison. Yes. <laughs> well, we uh, well deer deer are a thing because we only really had um, red deer and roe deer. Yes. Originally, didn't we? Red and and now we've got all these different species of deer. We have the fallow was brought in by the Romans. Yeah. Were kept, well, fallow were kept in pens. Yeah. So when the Romans left, so did the fallow, and then they come back again with the Normans. Oh, do you know? I didn't know that. So the reason we know that is because. I've got to get it the right way around. Here. So the, the, <laughs> Ro- the Romans brought Western Mediterranean fallow. Mm-hmm. If I'm wrong, it's Eastern, but I'm pretty right, sure it's Western. Okay. And then the Normans bring Eastern. So from the DNA, we can tell the ones we've got now are not the ones the Romans have. So they do seem to disappear. Rabbits are the same. Romans brought rabbits. We've got no evidence that we had them during the Saxon and Viking times. They just disappear. The Romans, we've got Roman snails that are now protected species. We've got them on the farm here. We've got an old Roman villa. So, are they left over from that villa? I don't know. Mm. As you do, you just we've got Roman villa just down the back. Is it whatever you say, yeah. as you do. As you do, as you do. Um, so we pick up the old Constantine coins and yeah. things, you know, that sort of thing. I've got a young archaeologist club actually. They're they're brilliant. If you're into archaeology and you've kids who want to get into it or yeah. you know anything, young archaeologist club, amazing. We do things with them, and we've got them coming uh, in a couple of weeks. There, they're actually going to be doing some surface find walking and learning how to do that and then they'll come back to the hub and they'll wash all the stuff off and then they'll learn how to categorize it and draw it and do everything wow. so that's the sort of thing we like we like that we, we work with every age group that's absolutely right yeah. think, so. let's have a quick peek i can oh, turn yeah. them down so i'll start to cook underneath they get a bit hot but we've got queen bumblebee that's a <laughs> she's looking for somewhere to start she's she's working she's out. rather garlic yeah she's <laughs> looking for somewhere to 
yeah. to start her colony. I was up in Scotland a little while ago, and uh, I was, I was, as you do, looking at various different things and got involved with some guy, um, a little bit of work they're doing up there with the wildcats. And, uh, you know, they were saying there's all this money going into to bringing these animals back into our ecosystems, the beavers and everything else. Mm. But we're losing things. Well, I'm losing insects, like, you know, everybody's losing things. Yeah. But the wildcat, we lose Scottish wildcat. And the biggest reason we're losing it is the genetics, because they're breeding with feral cats and domestic cats. Um, and we're losing our Scottish wildcat, which is our only cat. Unless you believe the stories. Well, yes. About black there's, cats. There's and humans <laughs> and everything there's running around. Running around, yeah. yeah. I did see the other day there's... Um, trying to think where it was. Was it near Bath? They found some beavers that are... Yeah, successfully, be... they don't know where they came from. They will be, because so there's people, you can have a private collection of animals. Yeah. There, there, there are people who have private collections of very exotic animals. They're, they're all licensed and everything else, but they, that goes on. And I know that when I, was, when I was, again, doing the dung beetles, I had to look at dung everywhere. And I, I've, I've looked at, uh, worked with yak up in Scotland, um, and all sorts of different things, and rhinoceros mm. down at the um, wildlife park, I think it was all sorts of different animals and things that people, and you know, not, not not just zoos have got. I always wanted to have an ostrich of my own, and I was going to call it Bantam, so I you know, had that running around the garden. They're quite destructive <laughs> in your garden, but you need a dangerous animal license and all sorts of things. So, And I'd be useless. I mean, I, 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 I've got turkeys. We thought we'd do, we'd, we'd, we'd do our own turkeys. Yeah. So we, we knew exactly what they were being fed. We'd look after them, make sure it was all good and their animal welfare, everything would be fine. And then we'd kill them in time for Christmas. Yeah. You know, and that's fine. And I, I've, I've plucked turkeys for people's Christmas, uh, you know, for Christmas and all this sort of thing. So it'd be no problem. Well, we named them. We only had two of them. Naming them's always a bad thing. Yeah, mistletoe and tinsel. And then the fox got tinsel. And that left just mistletoe, who was now really lonely, started to bond with us and bonded with me, ended up being like a guard turkey. So, and, and yeah, basically eight years later, mistletoe sort of died of old age and never got onto the plate. So, yeah. Those look pretty good, I think. Wow, look at that. Yeah. I was going to say, if I put them down there and then you can put the rest of the batter. Ooh. Excuse my fingers. Do you think I can get... My son to eat these as well. Does he eat vegetables? He does. He's very good. Very good. He's one of these annoying people that can just eat whatever they want. Will not put on a tiny ounce of weight. Just making sure it turns out the right way. Too hot. Oh, I think my children don't quite realise. Well, they do. I think they do appreciate. They've had some most amazing people come through, and they've gone out and met people and had things happen here that. Yeah. Are a little different. Wouldn't happen anywhere else. No, no, there's something goes on here. Yeah, we love it, and I've cultured that as well. I encourage that. So we've done we've done various TV stuff. We've done various experiments. We've had incredible people come here. Um, I had a friend the other day because I work in so many different fields, and we, as I say, people come here. We're a little bit off beaten track, but not too far. Yeah, and the first thing I'll say is, "Oh, stay." We've got a spare room. Stay. In the summer, we'll get the fire pit lit. We'll go and sit outside and um, discuss what you've been up to. And I've, I've got all sorts of different. We had a a um, forensic, wildlife forensic veterinarian who deals with um, primates in um, in Uganda, I think it is, somewhere. 
and ended up, oh, it's just brilliant. My kids were exposed to all this stuff. They're so lucky. I'm so lucky, actually. It sounds like you need to write a book. I've been asked if I'd write a book, but I don't know where to start. I really don't know where to start. It's a long book. It would be, it'd be <laughs> you're, you're writing your books. I've You've just bought out a new book, haven't you? Uh, yeah, about six months ago. And what's that's that's uh, so it's less um, Viking. That's eat like a halfling. Eat like a halfling. So it's a bit. I'd call it fantasy food, but a lot of it's based on you know old-fashioned recipes like pies and. So you're still things. using food that you can you know easily source. You're not. Are you yeah, using nothing, like five Chinese five spice and that sort of thing? No, I was I was quite particular as well. So I had a lovely recipe for a chili chocolate brownie. Oh, it's amazing. But then I thought, do hobbits or halflings have access to chilies? So I was, I was almost looking okay. at it from the same perspective as a reenactor, going, can I use that? No, I can't, because they wouldn't have had it. Yes, so I had my yes just watch out. that. Just watch that. Because I, I, <laughs> I, I played Eleanor de Provence at, to Evesham and, um, with my reenactment group, which is Britannia. And uh, yes, I, 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 I didn't mean to play Eleanor de Provence. It, it sort of happened. Um, I, my son, one of my sons, is hugely into his reenactment, and yeah. um, he does World War One and Two and and the med- medieval period, yeah. and Knights Templar and things. And I dropped him off and ended up staying and getting involved. But because I, because I wasn't prepared, I had to whiz round and buy the kit there. Um, so it was a, these parents do stupid things like this to support our kids, don't we? And and but someone someone said, oh, you know, it's it's um, been hasn't been hand stitched. Um, and you'll need to either stitch over the top of it by hand or take it all apart and restitch it. It's like, I was only dropping my child off for five minutes, and now I'm walking around. And I, I would normally wear, you know, I have my, I've got quite bad eyesight. I hadn't got my contact lens with me, so I'd taken my glasses off. I'd stood in horse muck as I walked around on the, you walk around the village, the yeah. town, and I walked into a load of horse muck because I couldn't see it. And then I actually lost my little toenail because I walked through the camp, and someone had quite rightly, because it's at their camp, had left a box with chainmail and everything in it. Ouch. Of course, I hadn't, I'd got my glasses off because they're not authentic. I couldn't see where I was walking and I went smack into this. And took, so it was a, yeah, wow. it, was a, it, was, it was a baptism of fire, my, my introduction to that type of reenactment. Did you do it again after? Um, I have, well, COVID then came in. Yeah. So I'm hoping to get out again. I, the thing is, I, I'm, I do so much work in various different places, I'm always pinging all over the country. Yeah. Um, but I, I tend to tend to get involved again. It was great fun. I did enjoy it. And I love talking to people, as you might gather. <laughs> um, and anything that brings history alive and prehistory alive and just anything is it's brilliant. People love it, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Courses are really popular, aren't they? Yeah, people do. I think it's... it's... Being able to actually touch and smell and... Mm. Yeah. Rather than just reading about it in the book. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I, I struggled um, uh, with, with uh, I'm, I'm very academic, but I also struggle quite a lot with dyslexia, believe it or not. And, um, and it's something I've been really aware of because I've got boys so that, you know, it comes out more in boys and girls for some reason, but um, that's how it is. And, um, but I'm really aware of how people can learn. Nobody's sick. That, 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 that's, that's just, I've never, ever, ever met a thick person. I just don't think that exists. I think people just need to learn in different ways. And, yeah. and once you've worked out how you need to learn, then off yeah, you go. I'm not very academic, so for me, this hands-on is you what ingredients do we have, what can we cook? Absolutely. Everybody learns practically. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the thing. And if it's, 
I did um, I did Tudors. No, the school was doing Tudors, and one of my sons was was trying to get his head around the Tudors. And somebody said to me, I come from Suffolk originally, and they said, Oh, Kentwell Hall in in Longmouth and in Suffolk, they do a reenactment like big Tudor thing. Um, and so I thought, Right, we'll go. And I don't know how they get, you know, it was just amazing. And we ate Tudor food. They spoke to us in sort of medieval English and wore all the kit. And you were just completely immersed into it. And it was great. And he spent a day doing that, came back, got back to school, did a project on the Tudors, did also came top of the class. Wow. And he'd been struggling with the whole concept. But he just had one day, that one day, that trip out yeah. made all the difference. And that's what these workshops do, doesn't it? It really helps people learn stuff. It sticks more, doesn't it? You can yeah. remember stuff. If someone says to you they had wild garlic, you might forget tomorrow. Mm. But if someone sits there and shows you how to make something with that wild garlic... Yeah, I'm going to be making these again. Well, I haven't tried them yet, but... We can also remember <laughs> that they had wild garlic. Yeah. And they had frying pans. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, and a, a little electric. A little electric hob. <laughs> yeah, a little electric. Look at that. So these are... Um, mm. As you know, because you, you were around when we put them on the course, I got yes. one of the participants to it. Uh, but these are a mixture of um, butter, honey, and eggs with right. flour and then crushed hazelnuts. Okay. So they're quite sweet for a, for the Viking age. I and mean, we possibly think that a lot of the honey would have been used for making mead for ceremonies rather than right. as a sweet dish. But then perhaps, as we have to speculate with these things, it's possible that someone that was of a wealthy status would make something sweet for maybe a banquet or a feast. Okay. As a show of wealth. Okay. So I'm showing my wealth today. You're showing off your <laughs> today. As an Anglo-Saxon pig farmer from, from <laughs> Swine Dune, I'm showing you my well, wealth. Well, I'm feeling very wedding. spoiled. I'm feeling very spoiled. Thank you. I'd probably keep them for the pudding, I think. I was going to say, if, there's, if they're more they're sweet, sweet. And this is, yeah. are you going to have one of these as well? Of course, yeah. I'll let you grab one. Oh, gosh. Are you cooked all the way? Mine is. Yeah. Good. Mm. Okay. Oh, that's lovely. Do you know what? I'm not a huge fan. I can tell you now, I'm not a huge fan of spring onion, but this works brilliantly. <laughs> Should have said it at the beginning. No. no. I've made them without. And obviously, mm. there's no recipes from the time, so they'd use what they had available. Mm. So you could chuck a few herbs or something in as well. But this works really well. This must be, must be nutritionally, this must be pretty healthy. It's got to be, hasn't it? With green leaves in it. It tastes like beer. Mm. Mm. Quite a hoppy one. It is, it's in the butter, isn't it? But it works. Yeah. Oh, they're really nice. I'm going to make them again. <laughs> well, you know where to get your garden mm. from. Mm. The recipe is in the book, so you can copy that. So which which book is it? These are in volume two of Eat Like a Viking. Because I've made pesto. Mm. With wild garlic. That's the one oh, everybody makes. Yeah, that's the standard one. I haven't made the. Mm. Oh, they're really nice. Have you done the elderflower fritters as well, then? I've never yes, done those. I have done elderflower fritters. I made elderflower champagne. Yeah, I've done that. Nettle beer, which yeah. exploded all over my car. Oh, usually it's the elderflower champagne that explodes. No, nettle beer combusted on the M25 with me. That's quite an exciting story in itself. Go on. <laughs> Just another one of those days. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so no, but, um, and slow gin. Slow gin. In fact, any spirit-based thing I can make quite well. I did make some uh, barley wine once. 
which was like moonshine, and I think nearly blinded everybody. Uh, I've not done the um, birch bark, the sap that I'd like to try. That I did that. My neighbour was chopping down his trees, and knowing what I do, he sort of said, before I take it down, because hmm. you can't do any harm, yeah. do you want me to tap the tree? So I did. So it's the one time I've done it. And oh, I made a mead. It was nice. very nice. You did a mead with it. That's I a good a idea. Um, and then I gave him a bottle to say thanks. Oh. And then he gave it back. He gave it back? Yeah. Oh. He said it tasted like a wet dog. Oh. So you see, I would have kept rave that. reviews. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I would have kept that and just continued to see whether it continued to taste like a wet dog. Because presumably, as the more you drank, it probably didn't, I don't know. I quite enjoyed it, to be honest. But well, he yeah. said it tasted like a wet dog. So he said, if you like it, you can have it back. He said, I didn't want to just throw it away. Oh, oh dear. Sorry about that. So not everything I made. No. Oh, well. Well, that, can I try one of these now? Go for it, yeah. So I try one of these, right? Mm. So these are the... Gosh, they're nice. Because we have hazelnuts in the hedgerows. We struggle mm. quite a lot with the hazelnuts here because we have the squirrels. Mm. Um, yeah, they'll always get them first. Yeah. Usually, um, I found mm. at home, is you have to pick them whilst they're still green. Before mm. the squirrels want them. It's the same with the walnuts. The squirrels will take them. But you can eat them... You can eat green walnuts and hazelnuts. Mm. Are pickled walnuts? Yeah. Do you think the Vikings were doing pickling and bottling? Well, not really bottling, but... Maybe in pots, like your terracotta-type pots. Because they'd have to be storing the food. If you're eating... The only problem with eating seasonally is that it's very seasonal. So you'd need to preserve, which is partly Mm. why I do the fermented garlic. Is we don't know for sure that they were fermenting garlic, but it's a possibility because it means I've got garlic now that's from last year. Mm. So I've had it for the full year. Mm. And you can do it in a in a clay pot rather than a jam jar. Right. So there's no reason to think that they weren't doing that as well. Mm. You could use vinegar. They would have made vinegar from apples. Yeah. Cider vinegar. Cider vinegar. Yeah. Uh, you can brine things as well. We can dry things as well, can't you, as well? Yeah. Another way of preserving yeah. stuff. There is actually quite a lot of ways of preserving. Smoking things. Yeah. And they would have needed to utilise all these possibilities. Yeah. Mm. Some you're probably going to have to buy from somewhere. So you might brine things rather than... Okay. Yeah. Sort of fully submersing something in salt. Obviously it takes a lot of salt and it gets wasted. But if you brine it, you only need a small amount of salt. There are some old bacon recipes that are brined rather than submerged. Submerged. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I should imagine... You know, there would be that feast and famine, so trying to, to make that food last. It's this time of year, isn't it, really? Yeah. The, the um, hunger gap, as they call it now. Well, we still do it here. We have a pantry. It's an old farmhouse, we have a pantry. I don't know of hardly anybody these days who has pantries. Um, mm. You know, but, but we still have that, that facility here. And um, I'll hang things up and I'll dry them out and, you know, I'll store them and jams and things. The downside is that occasionally... You find yourself buying some raspberry jam when you're out or something, and then going back home and remember you've still got raspberry jam from about 20 years ago that's now sort of gone into a tiny sort of pellet of sort of like, I don't know, it's quite chewy jam. <laughs> so if you do store stuff, you do have to eat it. You get People get very excited, and then they, they bottle like garlic pesto, you know, they do all this stuff, mm. and then it all goes off, which is not really... The way forward, the whole idea from is last year still. So you've got some from last year, Pesto. Two from the fermented garlic. Really? So I've got two lots of two jars left over from last year. Oh wow! There's not a lot of point me making any this year. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. You're going to be. Can I use the other one? But then the temptation is there, isn't it? Mm. Especially if you like cooking and things. 
These are great. I'm back into my savoury again. They're lovely. I feel very healthy eating them. Nettles. Nettles are great. Mm. Do a lot of things with nettles. You had the nettle soup. Mm-hmm. Um, on the last course, we did nettles from here, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Wild garlic. Yeah, nettles. That went down really well. Nettles are great for wildlife as well. Mm. So um, people think I must you know, remove all the weeds and plant things. But see, weed is just a plant in the wrong place. Mm. And if you want insects and things, you want a native plant that yeah. just grows up naturally out of the seedbed. Because the adults of the stage, the insect might be eating something different to the larval stage. Mm. So you need to give that whole thing. No, I just, yeah, I love nettles. Well, when I don't land in them. Yeah, we usually keep at least some nettles in the hedgerows in the garden. Yeah, nettles are good. Just, uh, mm. lovely. You can come again. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Yeah. September 30th. Yeah, September 30th. Yes. Can we give a quick plug to your course? We can, yeah. Is that, is that allowed? It's my podcast. <laughs> Go, on. Go on. Yeah, so um, I run cookery courses, as we've sort of implied a few times, I think, already. Um, one of them is in the room just here. Mm-hmm. And the next date is 30th of September. Mm-hmm. So you can get from Berry Cross website, which is... Fort in... Sorry. It is uh, www.berrycrofthub.com. I'll put a link underneath. Yeah, <laughs> keep me away. I'm talking my mouthful. Sure. Sorry, everybody. It's the problem with the food podcast. It is. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be a problem if I stopped eating, but it's so nice. Um, yeah, so we we um, here we I've converted the old dairy that's part of the farm because it's it a really old farmhouse. So it was a time when the animals were still part of the farmhouse. Yeah. And they would have just been bringing in a couple of cows and milking them and putting them out. And there's a, a shed above it. And that's now, obviously, as time's gone, it's been encumbered in the house. Now I've turned it back into something of its own. And so we've got the old dairy that's converted into the laboratory and the indoor classroom. Then we've got the space that we're in now, which is what was known as a cart lodge. So literally used to keep the carts in here yeah. from the working horses and things. Um, and that's a, that's a great space because we put uh, hazel wattle out and we've got a half in, half out space, mm. which is quite handy for things. Yeah. And then the stables next door, it sounds very grand. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to make it sound as grand as it is. If you got here, it's, you know. Um, the, I got a little bit overexcited in there. Um, they still look like stables from the outside, um, but we got we got planning and we, we basically, I've taken down the old breeze block walls and things. Well, they mm. weren't old because they're breeze block walls from inside, um, which was a labour of love. I was out there with a kango hammer, a subtling torch, disc cutter. You know, I've done everything myself pretty much. I've had friends who come in and help me. I can't say I did it all myself, but I certainly mm. put, put quite a lot. But it's a bit of a passion. Um, and uh, now that's a lovely big barn and we use that space and you go in there. So even if it's raining, because it's got, got all special stuff in the ceiling and the roof. So even okay. if it's raining, we can go ahead or we can go outside. We've got areas outside we can do stuff in. You should probably say this is near Swindon. Oh, yes. So you didn't yes. mention where we where are. Where we are. Yes, <laughs> sorry about that. So we are up on the Downs. Mm. And if you are really keen on your archaeology in the UK, you will know about the Ridgeway and Uffington White Horse Hill and Wayland Smithy. Uh, we're, we're pretty much located next door to those. In fact, they're really you can just walk out of here and go straight up onto the Ridgeway. So we're really nicely located. And then, of course, you've got Stonehenge, about half, just over half an hour away, Avebury, West Kennet. Yeah, there's loads. Really get here. We're lousy with archaeology here. Just lousy <laughs> with it. It's everywhere. Yeah, it really is. Mm. I've got some neat these. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Oh, just lovely. I was, they're so simple, aren't they? Mm. I'd, I'd love the fact that this is so simple. You can do it as an adult. You can do it. You can go away with some friends. 
get the camp stove going, impress them with your, you know, your little bit of wild cooking. Yeah. Um, who's, with a tree branch. Exactly. I mean, who's not impressed when somebody turns up out of the gang with a, you know, with a whole load of wild food and sits there and does something, cooks something, when everybody else is thinking baked beans, sausages. Yeah. So that's great. And this is something so easy to do with children. Yeah, yeah, very easy. Um, but I think that's really important. that they, they could, A child could easily, under adult supervision, obviously you've got a knife chopping way. Um, I'd left my father You have to give children a little bit of danger. When she wants to help if I'm chopping apples to make apple juice. Mm-hmm. So we've, you know, we have a lesson with the bridge and yeah, mm. she's had a go. And that, that, from what we were talking about earlier on, in fact, we produce our own food and very much on the farm here and everything. You know, that is, that's so important that you have that connectivity with, with your food. Yeah. Where it comes from, how it's produced, you know, and what it tastes like when you harvest it. You know, all that sort of thing is something that people are losing in their food. Whereas Vikings and, and other people in history, in prehistory, they would absolutely know and value food. And you'd just pass on the knowledge, wouldn't you? Which is yeah. why there's no recipes because you're just going, right. We're making this today, and you yeah. just pass it on as. I don't. I don't think a lot of the time. I don't think people value food, mm. which to me is, is, is a shocking concept. Um, especially you when you know how much it takes to grow it, and and you know from a farming point of view. Yeah, it's a shocking concept that people people waste food and don't mm. value it, uh, and will buy something because um, flavour and taste is not the most important thing i know we were talking earlier on that it's it's a hard time especially at the moment yeah. and not everybody can afford different types of food um but we've got used to having food that isn't tasty but it's fritters but this is good. expensive food. no this is really cheap there's eggs flour all right we put ah. beer in you could use water or milk mm-hmm. as long as you put some liquid in there then, then anything would work so you could make them relatively cheap if you've got some wild garlic growing yeah. So as long as you know what you're picking, then pick away. I was hoping if I'd had time, I don't know if it's up yet, but you can get um, three-cornered leeks, mm. which would like a wild onion. Yeah, I don't. I haven't um, seen any. They grow yeah. up near us, um, not Viking. They're an invasive species, I believe. Right. So pick away. <laughs> you, you've yeah. made acorn coffee and things as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Do acorn coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's bringing in all these elements of things that they had access to and just deciding what might they have done with it. Mm. Mm. It's um, just experimental archaeology, as they say. You're Which we love. Experimenting with things. We love that. The thing is, like, we know they had frying pans. We found frying pans. Yeah. So what did they cook in? Yeah. Everyone thinks of boiled food and stews and soups. Okay, so why do they need a frying pan? Yeah, that's true. That is true. Potentially. I mean, there's no reason... Frying eggs? Yeah. We, we, yeah. I, I can't believe that we invented how to fry an egg. <laughs> and then you've got things like uh, in the leech stems, there's an omelette, sage mm-hmm. and pepper omelette, which is more for its medicinal purpose. But right. at the same time, if you're going to make an omelette, you need a frying pan. Yeah, that's true. Unless you're going to do it on a rock. <laughs> yeah, I've done that. I have yeah, done that on because we used, because um, I do Neolithic sort of mm. reenactment as well and of course you use hot stones for yeah. boiling water and things yeah. like that when I was up in the Orkneys we saw loads of everyone well, there's evidence of it around the UK but I saw a particularly large amount of evidence of it in the Orkneys it's making use of what you've got isn't it yeah really and how you can cook it cooking you you need a vessel ideally something to cook on don't you so yeah. source of heat yeah you can't keep reinventing the wheel 
I'm sure that fireworks. <laughs> fireworks. It's just uh, you got to know how to cook on fire because sometimes you can cook something and the next day you cook it and because it's a windy day the fire's not as hot and so it can take longer. Yeah. You know, to cook something properly. Uh, it's definitely a skill. Definitely. I've, I've, mm. And you can use a tiny fire and do so much with it. I've done it before where I've had, um, I've had some pots from um, Graham Taylor Potted History and I've had uh, a beakers, uh, mm. Bronze Age beakers or things. Of, no, no, it wasn't Bronze Age, it was Neolithic. Um, so it wasn't a beaker either. <laughs> it was a pole. Um, and I've had that resting in the warmer embers yeah. and constantly turning it and that's cooking quietly on its own. I've had uh, strips of meat over the top, sort of always drying them and smoking them and things like that. And then I've got, um, I've had other stuff coming in that I'm cooking closer to the fire, further away and so on. And you can cook a massive meal in many different ways mm. over a very small area of heat, actually. Mm. It's just that, how you're using it. Yeah. Which is, and, and obviously if you're going to go off, chop firewood, that's that's an energy loss, isn't it? And then you've got to haul it all back, yeah. potentially chop it again. Because um, someone then said to me, you get hot with a fire many times. Yeah. Um, and then you, you bring it back and you've got to now cook it and, you know, set light to it and get going and start your fire and everything else. If it's it's not something, it's not a resource you particularly want to waste, is it? No, not at all. Mm, that's lovely. No, I've enjoyed this. It's great. Podcast with food. <laughs> so there are six questions that I ask everybody. Mm. We've been, this is quite a long episode, so we should right. probably start to wrap it up. Should we do it? I was going to say, do you want to do that with, with a Harry? Should we do it with Harry? Because yeah. the course guys are gone now, so should we go over? Let's go over into the and lab and have Harry with us. Yeah, let's do that. We'll leave the food here because Harry might. No, we've got to leave it here because I'm going to keep eating it and I can't talk my mouth. <laughs> okay, so we've moved inside quickly because we've realised we've been talking for quite a while. Um, but there's a couple of things that we did want to bring up. So, one, you might notice is uh, the elephant in the room or the jackdaw. The jackdaw in the room. In the room. This is Harry. Hello, Harry. He's not quite a raven. <laughs> not quite. <laughs> he's, he's a little bit... Little bit um... <laughs> I know. It's springtime at the moment. He's a bit frisky. So behaviour is a little bit <laughs> tense at the front. And he's uh, one of your rescues, isn't he? He is. He was a yeah. day-old chick that fell down a chimney. And I reared him, thinking that at some point I'd have other jackdaws in at fledgling stage, because often we do, yeah. getting people's chimneys. And nobody came in that year, so Harry was all on his own. And imprinted on me, yeah. doesn't speak jackdaw, <laughs> is frightened of big skies and big places, and yeah. basically it's now a house jackdaw. So. And very briefly, because yeah, we're running out of camera time, I think, but uh, I know you said he's, he's um, a bit of a handful. He's a huge handful. Turns you know, up the kitchen. Absolutely. You know, these are wild animals. They're not, yeah. they're not pets. Don't go out getting a jackdaw to be a pet. Do not do that. You know, this is circumstances that Harry's ended up with us. And now, yeah. as a responsible person, I've got, you know, he's not able to survive outdoor, you know, away and wild. How long do they live? About 18 to 20 years. <laughs> And Harry's, Harry's been destroying my house for the last seven years, so um, it's uh, it's interesting. But he's very, very curious, yeah, uh, and keen to learn, it's constantly learning. And so, as a result, um, he's our logo. He is, yes, yeah, he's the logo. So it's important that we mention him today. Yeah, very much so. Thank <laughs> you. And you said before he keeps your cockroaches under control as well. Yeah, he keeps everything under control. Um, I've got geckos as well. He'd quite like to eat those if you've got half a chance. I've got beetles, <laughs> beetles that live in a tank in my kitchen. And, all sorts. and you'd quite happily eat everything, wouldn't you? Yes. 
and he didn't like it during COVID because there were no packed lunches and oh, things no. like that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So most people that come to Berrycroft get to meet Harry. Yeah. Don't they? So yeah, we couldn't go without mentioning. No, we couldn't. And the other thing we couldn't go without mentioning is in the background here, yes. we've got your headdress that you, you recreated. I think we did mention it earlier. I forget what we were recording. <laughs> We've been chatting for ages, haven't uh, we? Um, yeah, so this is a, the, a, an artist. So this has come from an artist's impression mm. of a headdress that a lady would have been wearing. Um, well, it's, it's a shamanic burial. They think it's shamanic. Uh, it's a Mesolithic burial from Germany. Yeah. And a place called Bad, uh, Bad Dorenberg, which is where the, this came from. And when they... Um, excavated it. It's it's got the remains of the the skull cap, the deer skull cap, red deer skull cap, and the the boar's tusks and teeth and everything is. And so the the fur and the feathers and everything is interpreted. Interpreted. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's a very sad story. She she was found with a very young child, and um, it's uh, she had this most amazing. Uh, uh, anatomical problem with with her her neck, which meant that if she went put her head over to one side, it would have affect the blood flow and everything. She'd go into like a semi conscious state, which yeah. meant that she could potentially go into this state without needing anything to get her into that state. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, the fact that she'd continued her life and had a child yeah. meant that she would have required looking after. And the fact that the great goods included various other things as well yeah. sort of pointed that she might have been in that type of position within the community yeah um but she'd also had a really bad abscess and everything on her on her jaw and things and there's every chance that that was going through the breast milk into the child too so uh it's a bit of a sad story yeah. but it's, it's a stunning piece of work but i went to the uh, i've always always been taken by this and mm. when we went to this um world of stonehenge exhibition in british museum yeah i was very lucky to go there a couple of times and and there was the parts of the headdress that was there and it's like, right, I'm going to make it. So I've made it authentically. I've made all the cordage. I've drilled all the holes through the bones and teeth and everything with, with flint and um, everything else. So, yeah. And you occasionally wear it, right? I wear the whole kit. I wear the whole <laughs> kit and I wear it and, yeah, and tell yeah. people about the whole story. Yeah. So, yeah, it's great. Or what we know anyway. And explain yeah. that, you know, this is pre-written word and you've mm. got to be careful. You don't always put on what you think. Yeah. Because we just yeah. don't know, um, and how we how a lot of our understanding comes from graves, which is you know the end of someone's life. And you don't know that's how they lived either. Do no, you, you don't. It's an interpretation of no. Exactly. If someone buries me in a tux, it doesn't mean I was wearing a tux every day. Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. You know, it's yeah. that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's been that was a real labour of love, a real labour of love to make that. Um, and I'd say the feathers are ones we've picked up from the farm. No bird has been plucked for this headdress. Uh, but um, yeah, it's and she had a, a boar's throat bone, just you know. Yeah. So whether it was on a again, we don't know if it really was part of the necklace and where if this is exactly where things went. But that's what we're going by. He's into everything. Don't miss a trick, do you? No. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to be friendly. Oh, you're going to be friendly. It's a bit like a cat though, because I can turn. Suddenly turn him. <laughs> so we'll do the last questions before yes. my battery dies. Yes. Shall we? yes. Yes. So the first one is: if you had an unlimited budget, what would be your dream project? If I had an unlimited budget, my dream project. Um, well, unlimited. Well, obviously, I'm going to spend some on more dung beetle research. That's, <laughs> that that goes without saying. Uh, but my alongside that, I would 
spend that money on being able to help people try various different bits of personal research because there are so many people out there that are doing research and want to know more and understand more and try things out uh, who aren't actually at university, aren't students or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Berkeley Hub, that's something I love doing here is we do have students that come through our universities. Uh, we also have people that just want to try something and they're thinking about it. And we talk about amateurs yeah. and we talk about professionals. And there's a very, very dodgy lot. You know, I've got amateur uh, entomologists who, quite frankly, are just incredible. And, yeah. and their knowledge is exceptional. And I would always go back to them. Um, yeah. So I, there's many people in that are doing prehistoric stuff and things that would, would love to have the mm. opportunity to have space and resources and things given to them so that they could do something more with it. Yeah. And that, that I would love to be able to, if I had unlimited resources and funding, it would be spent on letting people do some of the crazy things that they want to do um, and learning and everything else and, and being able to enable more and more people to come here and do yeah. more stuff. Very Croft 2.0. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'd be a nightmare. I'd yeah. be a nightmare. I just want to learn stuff. There's so much I want to learn. The more you learn, the more you know how little you know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And that's why I've cancelled dying and getting old, by the way, because there's just so much I've got to learn. Yeah. Uh, all right, so the next question. Yes. And we're going to have to base this on what we do know. Okay. So do you think you could survive on a Viking Age diet? Oh, yeah. I think so. Definitely. If it the was Vikings like what we just ate. <laughs> yeah, definitely. The Vikings, I think I'm halfway there already. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I think it's, it's um, you know, I was taught the skills of jam making and things like that, you know, so yes. I've been taught how to present my food. I already produce my own food um, and I've, in, you know, had an interest in foraging and doing foraging stuff. I think, absolutely. Mm. And I think you live really well and healthily. Probably healthier. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah. I think that's it. I'm, I'm knocking on the half, over half a century, so, <laughs> you know. So tied into that is, is there anything you'd miss, any food you'd miss if you were on a Viking Edge diet? Well, I'm sure everybody said this before, chocolate would be, would be yeah. a miss, yeah. definitely. Um, and uh, sugar, um, I, obviously sugar's in our food, but I'm not somebody who goes out for sugar. I don't put sugar in my teas, coffee, and, yeah. you know, I'll leave sugary foods. I'm not, not massively driven by cake, although obviously I enjoy cake. Yeah. So sugar wouldn't be the one, but you'd need it a bit with your chocolate. Chocolate, no, chocolate would be the hardest thing, really. Yeah, chocolate would be definitely the hardest thing to not have. Yeah, I'm partial yeah. to the odd banana. I don't suppose you have many bananas during the Viking food. No bananas, I'm afraid. No, no. bananas are good for your potassium. Um, yeah. But yeah, no chocolate would be the one yeah. I'd miss. Brilliant. What's the worst thing you've ever eaten? Right, okay. So I've eaten quite a variety of foods. Um, I'm, a, I'm very much an experimentalist. I'll have a go. Someone says, I want to try this, and it's pretty disgusting. Um but uh, the worst thing I've ever eaten. Can I tell you about a meal that I had recently then? Or is no, that going to interfere with, a, with another, another question? Possibly. Oh, Do you want to wrap it into one question? Shall I wrap it into one question? Because I know you know the questions already. Don't well, you? you did ask me. Um, you did give me a bit <laughs> of a heads up. So, so you've got this question is what's the worst food? And the next question is most memorable meal. Okay. It could potentially be the same thing, I guess. All right. Well, well, let's go. So I was, I was, um, I was abroad, and uh, for my worst, worst food. Now it wasn't worst food because it was worst tasting. It was more of a case of it was so shocking to me in many respects. And it was um, kebab or kebab, like a skewer skit kebab gerbils. Oh. 
um, in a country where they've got lots and lots of gerbils. You know, there's there's like rodents, mm. either gerbils or rats or something. Anyway, they were they could have even been rats. They were rodents anyway. Yeah, rats would be bigger. Gerbils are quite small. Yeah, right? these were, we were quite. They were being cooked. And they either, way. either way, um, and, and, I'm, and I'm eating. You know, you, when I go abroad, I, I'll eat what what everybody else eats. What the you know the nat- native indigenous people are eating. Yeah. Then that's nice times that's going to be a lot healthier and safer to eat as well than demanding chips or anything. And also, you're just mucking in, so you just get on with it. Yeah. Um, and there's these rodents on sticks that they're cooking, and as they cooked. The, the, the skin retracted. And rodents have very long teeth that are always growing, as we were talking about earlier. And, yeah. and as they cooked, these, this, the, the sort of, it, yeah, and it just <laughs> So that was probably the worst meal that I've eaten. In you, said not, you said that wasn't about taste, that was just the yeah, experience. Yeah, just the experience of that was saying. So flavour wise, was flavor-wise, it? Flavour wise. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I wouldn't make a habit of it, but yeah. Um, worst meal. <sighs> So hang on, so that was going to be your most memorable, isn't no, it? No, no, I've got more memorable meal than that. Okay, read so, quite that recently. Was, so that was your worst food? Yeah, that was, that was probably yeah. my worst food, just on the sheer, I don't know, I just found that really difficult so to get my head around. Most memorable meal would be the next question. Um, all right, most memorable food meal. Well, I've had lots of different meals and I, in amazing places with incredible people. So lots and lots and lots of amazing memories there with food and people. Because it's people that make food as well, you know, company and everything yeah. else. Um and, but, you know, you, you can have, I've had the most amazing scrumptious, full-on posh meals, and then I've been freezing cold, stuck on the side of a hill and found a Mars bar I'd forgotten years ago and under my car, and just, that's been the best thing, you know. <laughs> so it's what's on the side. Yeah. Um, but recently, I, because I, I travel all over the UK, and I often stay in Airbnbs and things like that, and I, I was recently having to go up to um, the Peak District. Yeah. And uh, I drove quite late at night, and I'd already done a lot of driving because I come from somewhere else anywhere. Way. And I decided I was going to take my dog with me because I was going to be there for a week and they'd got me in an Airbnb all self-contained on a farm. Mm. Um, and I said, is it okay if I bring the dog? And they said, yeah, absolutely fine. So I thought, oh, I'd love to take my, my dog with me. So I set off and uh, you can get cost, uh, a certain coffee shop, <laughs> you know, drive-ins now. Service stations, oh, brilliant. Oh, I, that's great because I don't need to take, you know, I can't leave yeah. the dog in the car and I can't take the dog into the service station. So I'll have a couple of... of um, of these coffees as I drive up. So what I didn't take on board was that you can't leave the dog on the car on its own, you can't go in the service station, and I had several coffees on my journey up, so you can imagine I got myself into a little bit of a state about that. I've learned a lesson now, do not <laughs> drink in that scenario. Yeah. However, when I finally got to this place, it was really late at night, um, and uh, I would, I should have thought, uh, I'll stop at a service, you know, at a petrol station, have the dog parked in the car right by the window, and I could run in and get a few supplies. But it doesn't matter because whenever you go to an Airbnb, there's always tea, coffee. Yeah. There's normally a box of cereals or something there. I'll be fine. So drove through all this countryside, got to this place really late at night, uh, about 10 o'clock. Um, so it's not really late, but got there at 10 o'clock. Went in, um, finally managed to go uh, to Lou, and, uh, and then um, sat down to find something to eat because I'm hungry. I haven't eaten for ages. And uh, I went around the Airbnb, nothing, nothing, not even, not even a tea bag. And the only thing I'm was, a bit worried about where this is happening. <laughs> the only thing was a bottle of prosecco, and that's all that was in this liquid this food. Liquid food. <laughs> so I thought, well, I can't drink a bottle of prosecco, you know. Well, about twenty minutes later, I'm sat on the sofa trying to get the TV to work with a pint of prosecco because there's only a pint glass there as well. So now I've got a pint of prosecco, um, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't need to to because the first day there, I'm going to be assessing the stuff before I do the actual work the next day. So. 
I thought, well, I'll be fine. I'll just have a sip of Prosecco um, and then I'll have another sip of Prosecco. And of course, it's in a pint glass. So you're going, and then I was thinking, God, I'm really hungry. I'm really hungry. I haven't eaten for ages. What am I going to eat? And I'm so hungry. And now I've had some Prosecco. That's, that's sort of taking the edge off, yeah. off my reasoning. And I ended up eating three dog treats, which weren't tasty at all. Very dry. Don't recommend. Mm. Don't eat dog food. Um, I did a couple of weeks back for another episode. <laughs> for worse food. But these are those shapes. Oh, no, um, yeah, no, no, that didn't go down for And what was really annoying is the next morning I went out in my car and found a bar of lint chocolate. I can't believe it. Should have checked the car, should have frisked the car before I went in the house. I was a bit worried because of the gerbils before. Yeah. Like, yeah. That was his bait box. Yeah, he went out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Always try and make sure you know if you're foraging where your food's come from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, no, uh, a bottle of Prosecco and three dog treats was, wow. was quite up there in memorable meals. Yeah, to be fair. Yeah. I couldn't remember that much. Though, so, yeah. <laughs> right, so the very last question for you. Okay. Because you've died. I've died, right. Uh, your family and friends are preparing your grave goods. Brilliant, yeah. What food and drink do you get to take to the feast in Valhalla? Okay, well, definitely some of my own beef from, from the farm. Me, hasn't it? That has to be. Yeah. Um, that would be, that's, yeah, that would definitely be the way. For me on that front um they can throw in a few vegetables from the garden as well i'll go for the full sunday lunch um and then for the drink it would be gin gin is my my weak spot yeah gin's t- yeah i'm afraid and now there's so many gins you can say is there a particular gin that you well i do like slow gin yeah um Classic. yeah slow gin uh, but but i'm i there's loads and loads of different gins um and there's uh I'm, I'm just, uh, to be honest with you, wherever I go now, I seem to get a bottle of gin. And I, I did something really, really clever. I didn't realise how clever it was at the time. I uh, Somebody gave me a bottle of gin because they knew I like gin as a thank you present for doing whatever I'd done for them. And I'd put it at the end of my table. And I have students and lots of other people and people come on courses, you all stay and all the rest of it. And uh, someone had spotted the gin and thought, oh, she likes gin. So they'd come and they'd bought me a bottle of gin. And so I put that on the thing. And then I, I left them at the shelf at the end of the kitchen. And then as more gin arrived, it's now become a gin competition. So students and things come and they try and bring me a gin that nobody else has bought me. And of course, there's been this explosion of gins. So you could probably bath in the amount of gin I've got. So actually, just open up my coffin and just pour gin in. And I'll, I'll just pickle myself from that. <laughs> um, but yes, no, gin, gin and I, I don't am I allowed tonic water in Valhalla because I don't like it neat. <laughs> I guess you can. Is yeah, it your yeah. choice? What yeah, you no, definitely yeah. A, a nice side of beef and, and gin. Gin and tonic. Yeah, gin. Definitely gin and tonic. Uh, yeah, um, where can people find you on social media? Because we did your website earlier. Yes, so I'm on uh, Instagram and, oh golly, Twitter, Facebook, all these different things. Yeah. Uh, you will either find the place as Berkhoft Hub and uh, it's in various different states but basically if you Put in Berrycroft Hub, you will find Berrycroft Hub. There's only one. There's only one, uh, and uh, and it'll always have the Jackdaw as the logo. And then I'm on social media as Sally Ann Spence again, so you will find me. Which is basically a combination of many interests, basically. When you get to that, I don't do any personal social media really. No. I, I just I'm sucked dry by social media. <laughs> just can't cope with anymore. Um, and actually, yeah. you know, we do have so many people here. This is such an open house, and everything else. I keep my actual personal personal life quite. Personal. <laughs> so, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I said we'd take an hour and we've taken several. We have, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, thanks for watching, guys. And I'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye.
If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more, remember to like and subscribe and give the show a rating. You can also help keep the show going by becoming a Patreon where you'll get early access to all episodes. Or check out my range of merch on my store. Links are in the episode description. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 